Welcome to part two of our series in 1 Corinthians. And before we get into God's word, I'd love to pray. As I pray, pray for yourselves that the Spirit of God will work with the Word of God to bring transformation in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your Word that speaks to us. Though it was written 2,000 years ago, the inspiration of the Spirit then connects with the inspiration of the Spirit now. Would we allow your Word to bring change in us? Would we not only hear, but would we agree and in obedience would we apply as we work through this series together? Amen. Amen. So, part two. Last time we tried to answer three key questions to help us understand this great letter. We asked the question, who was Paul who wrote it? What was Corinth like, this city that he was writing to? And what was the Corinthian church like within that city? We recognise that although we are separated by 2,000 years, Paul's faith journey, the city of Corinth, and the challenges facing the Corinthian church were similar to our journey and our city and our challenges. Actually, this letter has a huge resonance for us today in the global village. We finished last time reminding ourselves that the overall context of this letter is one of mission. Paul was a man called to a mission, the mission of God to spread the gospel. And he planted this church on mission and he planted this church for mission. They are meant to be a missional community. Their lifestyle, therefore, matters. Not in relation to the love of God. God loves them because he loves them. But their lifestyle is part of their witness. It's part of their mission. The culture of the church in Corinth was meant to change the culture of the city and not the other way around. And that challenge is the same for us today. And it is so good for us to ask these foundational questions around the background of a New Testament letter. We should be seeking to ask questions of the text that we might understand what God was saying to a certain set of people at a certain time in history. But we know that this is the eternal word of God and therefore we must also allow the word, the scripture, the text to ask questions of us. Yes, it is good. It's a good hermeneutic. It's a good way of studying to interrogate the text. But we must let the word interrogate us. And to that end, over this series, we are encouraging you, we're encouraging one another to really do a deep dive into this letter, to spend time in it as often as possible through the day, to use the reading guide that is on our website to read the passages ahead of when you're hearing a sermon on them. Brothers and sisters, let us give the word of God free reign in our lives. Let's absorb it. Let's soak ourselves in it. Discuss it in your friendship groups, in your life group, if you're in one, around your household. Learn bits of the text. Let's really absorb what God wants to say to us, that our lives might be an increasing witness of the grace of God to those around us. 
So the, right now, we're going to look at kind of 25 verses. Some will skate over pretty quickly. Some will spend some more time in. And I'm going to read to you the first handful of verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we work through this letter together, we will discover that it's arranged in broad sections. Section on unity, on holiness and sexuality, on idolatry, on corporate gatherings and spiritual gifts, and on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there will also be three themes that run through the whole letter, like threads through a a tapestry that disappear behind for a while and then take prominence and then disappear again. At times, those threads will appear briefly, just a phrase. At others, time, another time, Paul will unpack them in detail. And as we look at these first 25 verses, we will glimpse some of those threads. And then in verses 18 to 25, Paul will start to unpack a theme in more detail. And that theme is the centrality of the cross. So we move on to verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. First thread. And be warned, I'm not going to number them as we go through. Don't feel free to keep track yourself. So first thread, thankfulness. I love the way that Paul starts with, I always thank my God for you. Now, as we will discover, the Corinthian church was a mess. There was much to criticise. There was much to judge. There was much to point out. There was much to correct. But how does Paul start? Thankfulness, gratitude. Paul expresses gratitude for the Corinthian church, even though it is a mess. Paul does not allow the present problems of the church to obscure the beauty of the church, the potential of the church, the love in the church, the power in the church. And why? Because God is passionate about his church. He is thankful for them, not just because he loves them, but because he loves God. And he loves what God is doing and will do through these people. How about you? How about me? Are we thankful for the church. Do we have an attitude of gratitude? Do we live that out when we are working one with another? Secondly, Paul reminds them they do not lack anything if they have Christ. They have been saved. They are being sanctified. Their future is secure. They will be presented holy on that day of 
days. This Corinthian church, which is getting distracted by all sorts of super knowledge or super spirituality, needs to be reminded the gospel is not Jesus plus, it's Jesus. And right here at the beginning, he reminds them and opens up this theme. So for us, friends, we need to remind ourselves we have everything we need in Christ. The church has everything it needs in Christ. And therefore, we can be thankful. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, ah, but I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Oh, so no one can say they were baptised in my name. Uh, Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul now opens up his first big theme, unity. It would appear that Paul has been sent a letter, maybe brought by someone, alerting him to a number of issues in the church. And what we have in 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to that letter and that account. Paul has heard there is disunity. Now, we don't know if disunity was the first thing that was mentioned to Paul or whether Paul sees it as the most important issue. What we do know is that It's the one he deals with first. There is disunity in the church and Paul will have none of it. In a world that's increasingly divided, polarised, antagonistic, self-righteous and self-centred, it is vital for Paul that the church then and the church now is unified. The church is meant to speak a better story to the world around it. Not that we will always be agreeing about everything. There will be issues where there will be debate and discussion. But it's rather that within the church, disagreement and discussion should never breed dissent, disruption and disintegration. Now, Paul, classically, will pick up some of the details of their disunity later in chapter 3. But at this point, what he does is he begins to unpack the why behind the what. He's been told there is disunity. He wants to speak into that and bring unity. And so what he does is say, well, why might there be disunity? Why is there division in this church planted around the gospel when Christ is unified? And he does this, I think, by pulling them back to the cross. And so he moves on in verse 18 to unpack this message of the cross. For the message of the cross, says Paul, is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Paul is quoting Isaiah. Where, he says, is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles or Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, when I first read through these verses, I wondered if Paul has simply got distracted at this point. We know that Paul is dictating this letter, probably to Sosthenes. And, and sometimes when I'm chatting, I'll, I'll get distracted. I'm an, what's called an external processor. And I'll, get, I'll go off on a tangent. And I wonder, oh, did Paul go off on a tangent and then remember what he was supposed to be talking about, unity? And then that's what we get at the beginning of chapter 3. Possibly. Though if it is a tangent, it's a very well-constructed tangent. Over the coming verses, starting in verse 18, Paul will make over 20 references to wisdom, contrasting the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. The Corinthians thinking, the wisdom of their age, had led them into disunity and division. Before addressing the specific issues, personality cults, that's what it means when I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Cephas, Paul is challenging their thinking, their wisdom, their philosophy. We know from Scripture that as a man thinks, so he is. We know from modern psychology that what shapes our behaviour is our belief. That's why what we believe matters. And Paul, in his letters, will often adopt this approach. He'll deal with their thinking. What do you believe? What do you think? Before he then changes their, or seeks to change their behaviour. And so here, over these coming verses, ahead of chapter 3, when he gets back into the specifics of their disunity, Paul will challenge their thinking, their wisdom, in three ways. And he'll do that by bringing their minds, bringing their thinking back to the cross of Christ, the humility of Christ and his church, and the vital role of the Holy Spirit. And in those verses that we just read, we have these these couple of verses, 22 and 23. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. We're going to spend the rest of our time focusing on what Paul focuses on, the cross of Christ. Paul does not have an issue with signs or with wisdom. Paul believes in signs and wonders. Later on in the letter, Paul will talk to us about spiritual gifts, about signs, things that the Holy Spirit does when we gather and when we're scattered to point people to Jesus. 
Paul was dramatically saved. And in the moments of his salvation, there was a sign. He went blind. He was knocked off his horse. He received healing. Paul saw miraculous signs in his ministry. He saw, he, he saw people raised from the dead in his ministry. Paul believes in signs. Paul believes in power evangelism. Paul also believes in wisdom. He believes in a well-crafted argument. He believes in preaching truth. Paul was passionate about the Old Testament, which includes wisdom literature, a whole book called Proverbs, where God gives us wisdom. So Paul is not anti-powerful signs and wisdom, and yet here he challenges the fact that Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. What is he actually challenging then in their thinking? The clue is that Paul attributes signs to the Jews and wisdom to the Greeks. He's not talking about signs and wonders generally or wisdom generally. He is he's challenging specific issues in certain thinking. When Paul talks about spiritual gifts and the wisdom of God's word, they're common for all. Whereas Paul's negative assessment here of their thinking is, is uh, identified as being something the Jews have and the Gentiles have. We understand the flaw in the signs that the Jews are looking for and the wisdom the Gentiles are looking for through these phrases stumbling block and foolishness. The cross is a stumbling block for the Jews. It is foolishness to the Greek. Why is the cross a stumbling block for the Jews? Well, because it does not fit their definition of what the Messiah should be like. The Jews were looking for a Messiah who displayed specific signs, signs of political power, signs of authority that would rid them of their oppressors, signs that would re-establish Israel in terms of its boundaries, its prestige and its placing in the world. Unfortunately, Jesus spent all his time talking to the wrong people in the wrong places and doing the wrong things. Jesus forgave his enemies on the way to being killed by his enemies. The signs that Jesus gave them were the wrong signs. Jesus did not fit in the box that the Jews had designed for him. Why is the cross foolishness to the Greeks? Well, the Greeks had a philosophical view of humanity which elevated the mind above the body. The Epicureans, the Stoics, the Gnostics all wanted theology without the mess of flesh and blood, nails and gall, crowns of thorn and rough-hewn wood. Theological debate was meant to lift us beyond this world. The gods were totally other to our world, operating in their own sphere. It was the mind that mattered and the ability to reason ourselves to God. The Jews wanted to put God in a box of their making, geographical, political, powerful. The Greeks wanted to put God in a box of their making, thoughtful, philosophical, cerebral. And Paul challenges both. The cross of Christ, the crucified God, confronts Jews and Greeks alike with the reality of the Incarnation. The word made flesh, the wisdom of God, refusing to fit in the theological mindset of the philosopher or the religious 
zealot. Paul challenges the thinking of the world through the cross. Well, that's all well and good, but what's that got to do with disunity? Why does that matter? Well, because the cross exposes pride. It exposes the pride of the Jew and the Greek. When we want God to fit inside our box, that's pride. The Jews wanted Jesus to fit in their box of what a Messiah should look like. The Greeks wanted Jesus to fit into their box of what God should look like. Jews and Greek alike reject Jesus, the perfect revelation of God, because he doesn't fit with their plan, their style, their definition, their lifestyle. Paul is exposing their thinking because their thinking exposes their pride and pride is the root of disunity. Why can't I forgive? Well, because you've hurt my pride. You've hurt my identity. If I let you off the hook, I'd be lowering myself and I'm proud. I want to elevate myself. Why can't I back down in an argument? Well, because I'm right. Okay, I'm right. I need you to know you're, you're wrong. Once you've accepted you're wrong, that'll be great because that'll prove that I'm right and then we'll be unified again. You see how, because I cannot let go of my pride, that leads to disunity. That leads to division. So Paul is saying this, I need to deal with disunity. But I need to understand why there is disunity. I need to challenge that disunity with the cross. Why am I challenging disunity with the cross? Because the cross challenges their pride. But why is pride such a big issue? Well, friends, because pride is at the root of all sin, disobedience, brokenness and pain. Why does Paul deal with this first? Because God deals with this first. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 7 says this. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom... She took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Paul is passionate about unity because disunity is sin. And what lies at the heart of their disunity? Their pride. And so he challenges them with the cross because the cross challenges the fact they want God to fit in their box. Disunity is a sinful attitude which grows out of my pride. It is itself a protection mechanism for my insecurity which has at its foundation my brokenness. A brokenness that at its root is my shame. They realised they were naked and they were ashamed. And where is pride dealt with? 
Where is our nakedness dealt with? Where is our brokenness dealt with on the cross of Jesus? Paul brings them to the cross because it is the cross that deals with this issue. Why does it matter? Because if I do not allow the cross of Christ to transform my life, I will remain in my pride. I will try and fit God into my box. Why does that matter? Because I will perish. For the message of the cross is foolishness, says Paul, to those who are perishing. David Pryor, in his commentary on Corinthians, says this about the word perishing. He says, the word perishing stands for definitive destruction. Not merely in the sense of the extinction of physical existence, but rather of an eternal plunge into Hades and a hopeless destiny of death, in the depiction of which such terms are used as wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. What is the lie the serpent says to the woman? You will not certainly die or you will not certainly perish. Why does this matter? So much to Paul, because their disunity points to their pride, and their pride points to their sin, and their sin points to the fact that they will perish. And so he throws the cross in right at the start. Paul bookends all his arguments in the letter with the foundational truth of the gospel. In chapter 1, the cross of Jesus Christ, and then in chapter 15, the resurrection of Christ. The fundamental question for every believer, for every person, is what do we believe about the cross and what are we going to do about it? And Paul therefore reminds them of this fact right at the start. It is the root of all the issues that will follow. Their pride. Before Paul will unpack Christ's humility, the work of the Spirit, the foolishness of personality cults, the ethics of sexuality, etc., he pulls the Corinthians back to the foundation of their faith. They were dead in their sin. But because of the cross, because of God's grace, they have been made alive in Christ. Remember that word perish? Well, here's some reminders of what God says about it. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 10 verse 28, I give them eternal life that they shall never perish. John eleven fifty. do you not realise it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? Why, why does it matter? Because our sin will lead us to perishing. Eternal separation from God. And Paul wants to remind them of God's grace. In Christ you will not perish. Paul challenges their pride and ours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have not abandoned us in our sin. You have not left us to perish. You have not left us to hold our pride, but you have nailed it to the cross in Christ. And through Christ and through your grace, we can step into a glorious, humble relationship with you that will transform our lives, the lives of our church, 
and the lives of our community. Thank you, Lord. Amen.